Leone family. They have such music running through their veins and they share their gifts with us in many ways. And I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for you folks. Uh, there's many of you who've told me you've been praying for me as I get thrown into the deep end here. I'm here willingly, of course, but I appreciate your prayers this week as I have been preparing for this and uh, get the chance to um, share with you today. I woke up Thursday morning with laryngitis. And I came into the office going, help, what am I going to do? And Pastor Jerry was there, and he laid, got the staff around. They laid hands on me right away, and they prayed for me. So I'm thankful for a staff like that who gather around and support one another. And um, so, so here I am, and here we go. My name is Pastor Kelly, and if you're new here, we just welcome you here. I'm the youth pastor here, and um, yeah, we're going to talk about choices we have so many choices, choices and voices, right? Uh, our society is full of options, and we like choice. We not only get to choose our stuff, but we choose our leaders. We're free to choose our activities. We choose where we live, what job we want to apply for. Doesn't mean we always get what we want. We get to choose even what we eat for dinner. Choices bombard us every day. And because of this, we have so many voices trying to get our attention. They call out new promises, bigger and better, because in order for them to be chosen, they have to get our attention, right? One thing all these voices have in common as a general statement generally, is their own self-interest. For example, the politician, he wants to get elected, so he makes promises. But really, he wants a position of influence and power. The store owner, the advertiser, the salesperson, they all need to make a profit. So that idea of the customer comes first, it, it sounds like they're serving us, but in reality, they need to meet the bottom line, and the way to do that is to get us to choose them. And we will choose them if we think they're thinking of us. Many are hired part-time workers, and they're just trying to make ends meet, and that's not bad. But again, it's, they're there for their needs, not ours. All of these voices are trying to capture our attention. It may claim to have the answers you're seeking or even the ability to save your soul. So many car commercials these days. But it's rare that they actually care about you. There is one voice that's an exception. I wonder, can you hear it? I have a little cartoon for that, I think. So anyway, we're continuing in our series in John today, and in our passage that we're going to look at in a minute, we find Jesus talking to a crowd, and he's likely in the temple, and it's likely Hanukkah. If you read, it's not in our passage, but if you read farther down in the chapter, that's actually probably the time of year. Prior to this, when we studied chapter 9 before Christmas, Jesus, if you remember, he'd healed a blind man, and he did it on the Sabbath. 
This was a no-no. He had left quite a controversy in his wake as he left. The Pharisees, they basically put the former blind man on trial as they tried to figure out what was going on and figure out what had happened. And after some time, Jesus had come back for Hanukkah, hearing that the former blind man had been thrown out of the synagogue for challenging the Pharisees and for telling the truth. Jesus finds him, and they have a conversation. So he's talking to the former blind man. And the Pharisees, who were evidently nearby, they were meant to hear this conversation. And Jesus, in not so many words, tells the blind man and anyone who happened to be listening to his voice exactly who he is. So this week, we pick up on an ongoing conversation in chapter 10. We're in John 10, verse 11. If you want to read along, follow along. John 10, verse 11. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. A hired hand will run when he sees a wolf coming. He will abandon the sheep because they don't belong to him and he isn't their shepherd. And so the wolf attacks them and scatters the flock. The hired hand runs away because he's working only for the money and doesn't really care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep and they know me, just as my father knows me and I know the father. So I sacrifice my life for the sheep. I have other sheep too that are not in this sheepfold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice and there will be one flock with one shepherd. The Father loves me because I sacrificed my life so I may take it back again. No one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily. For I have the authority to lay it down when I want to and also to take it up again. For this is what my Father has commanded. When he said these things, the people were again divided in their opinions about him. Some said, he's demon-possessed and out of his mind. Why listen to a man like that? Others said, that doesn't sound like a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I ask that you would bless the reading of your word, that you would open our hearts to what you would have to say, what you could teach each of us, and um, we just commit these next few minutes to you, Lord. Amen. The Good Shepherd. What images does that bring to your mind? Does it take you back to Sunday school? Or perhaps to pictures on your grandma's wall? A lot of us in the West had something like this at one time or another. We see an image of a white man with a lamb around his shoulders or a shepherd's staff in hand, and it's meant to evoke a peaceful, easy feeling this shepherd with his sheep in a lush green field. But is this accurate? Or have we gone a little bit soft with the interpretation and with this image and this motif? When Jesus declared that he is the good shepherd, just what is he trying to say? Let me ask you this. Have you ever been to the Holy Land or have you seen pictures of the Holy Land? It is not lush and green. That's one inaccuracy. 
It is dry, desert, hilly, hard land. This is where they graze sheep. In order to find food and water, a shepherd in this land has to keep his sheep on the move. A shepherd has to have weapons. He has a rod, he has a staff, and a sling to fight off wild animals and thieves. Perhaps we should adjust our image of the shepherd and view him more as a warrior or a mountain man who can survive the elements as well as attack. I love that second one, the epic shepherd. That's David with Goliath there. The shepherd spends the days guiding his sheep to places where they can find food and water. No matter what the weather, they have to be out there. And then at night, they return to their fold or their pen. Now, in Palestine, from what I've learned in researching this, is that their pens was an enclosure built up of rocks and stone. And then they had thorn brushes, thorny things, brambles all around the top. And then the shepherd would lie across the entrance, and he would literally be the gate. The shepherd and the sheep, they spend a lot of time together. You have pets. A lot of you have pets, and you spend a lot of time with your pet, and you learn the characteristics of your pet, and you name it, and you find that it has a personality. So it's not hard to imagine that any shepherd who is out for long periods of time with his flock would do the same thing with his sheep. He'd name them, possibly. He'd know their personalities, and he'd be aware when one or two were missing. This has been an age-old picture of God as being a good shepherd. An age-old metaphor. We've been reciting Psalm 23 for the last couple weeks. Perhaps you've memorized it at one time or another yourself. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all I need. He lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me beside peaceful streams. He renews my strength. He guides me along right paths, bringing honor to his name. I think sometimes our, we would end there, just the first two verses, and maybe our soft interpretation comes because of that. We just end there. But really pay attention to the next few verses. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid. For you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You honor me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessings. Surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will live in the house of the Lord forever. As Pastor Jerry was sharing with us, this is a psalm of David, once a shepherd himself, then a king, always a warrior. And we see that the psalm's basic idea is that God is my shepherd, your shepherd, and he will take care of our needs and he will protect us from the enemy. It doesn't promise us a life of ease. But it does indicate that if the shepherd can prepare a table for us to eat in the presence of our enemies, 
means he's conquered those enemies and we can feast undisturbed. Our shepherd fights for us. In a moment, we're going to look at another but less known passage that talks about God being our shepherd. But for the next few minutes, I want you to try and put yourself in the shoes of a first century Jew. You're in the time of Christ, and you live in Jerusalem, or you live in Israel, not necessarily Jerusalem, and the psalm, this Psalm 23, it's part of your heritage. The author, King David, is very well known to you. He's a part of your story. If you were a first century Jew, you lived in a time where you weren't exactly a slave, but Israel is owned by another country, Rome. Rome had many gods, the emperor at one point declaring himself a god and that he needed to be worshipped. But the Jews, the Jews had one god, the one true god. From the time of Moses, pious Jews prayed every day something called the Shema, and I'm sure you're familiar with it. Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. As a Jew in this time, your culture and your religion, they are one. There's no separation of church and state. And at the center of this religion is the temple. It's beautiful. And it's huge. And people who didn't live in Jerusalem, but all around Israel, they made pilgrimage to come and be at the temple. This is where God's presence was supposed to intersect with mankind. His dwelling was supposed to be there. In the first temple, that was the case. It was called the Shekinah. God dwelt there. But that had not been the case for hundreds of years. For just before the temple was destroyed and people went in, the people went into exile, God's glory left the temple because of the people's sin. And the people of Israel eventually returned from the exile and they built the second temple, the one that Jesus is sitting in at the time of our conversation that we're looking at today. But the Shekinah, the presence of God, had not returned. And though the people had a king, King Herod, he was not of the line of David. He was basically a puppet to Rome. The Jews lived in Israel, but Rome actually ruled. So for all intents and purposes, the Jews were really still living in exile. They looked for a rescuer, the promised anointed one, the Messiah, who would come from the line of King David and who would rescue them from their enslavement to foreign powers. So this is the context in which the Jews were listening to Jesus in the temple at Hanukkah. And they sat in the second temple, awaiting and hoping for so many promises to be fulfilled. Jesus comes along and he says, I am the good shepherd. But this doesn't mean that he was telling them something nice to make them feel warm and fuzzy and to make them follow him. 
In this case, Jesus is stirring the pot. And the air is actually crackling with danger. Why would that be? To understand this, we must first read from the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 34. Ezekiel is a prophet from about 500 years earlier. During the exile, he's a messenger from God. This is shortly after the destruction of the first temple. And in Ezekiel 34, the chapter's been divided into three sections uh, by people after it was written. You're welcome to look through it. So just to summarize, the first third of this chapter, God is speaking through Ezekiel and he's chastising the leaders or the shepherds of Israel. He is rebuking them for looking out for just themselves and for leading his people astray, for neglecting them and abandoning them, his flock being Israel. If you're reading through it, you may notice that the next chapter is called the Good Shepherd. Here, the, the God states that he himself will be the shepherd of Israel, tending to them, protecting them, judging between them. He says in verse 23 and 24, I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David. He will feed them and be a shepherd to them, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be a prince among my people. I, the Lord, have spoken. This is interesting because David has been long dead. So who's he talking about? This promised rescuer, this anointed one in the line of David. Then God talks about a time when he will make a covenant of peace with his people and he will restore them. He finishes with this. In this way, they will know that I, the Lord their God, am with them. And they will know that they, the people of Israel, are my people, says the sovereign Lord, You are my flock, the sheep of my pasture. You are my people, and I am your God. I, the sovereign Lord, have spoken. God was saying that Israel's leaders, failed prophets and kings, were looking out only for themselves instead of Israel's needs. And so God was going to take care of them himself and be their shepherd. I love this because it reveals God's heart. So many times in our culture these days, we hear skeptics arguing that the God of the Old Testament is cruel and a tyrant and a genocidal maniac. But I think from this passage alone, and there are many, many others, it is clear that those who argue that have not actually read all of the Old Testament and they don't understand what's going on. Here, God speaks of his love for his people and of wanting to be personally involved in their lives. He wants to gather in those who have been scattered and bring them back to his protection and his oversight. For us today, when we read this, when we see God's heart like this, we can be assured of his love for each and every one of us. Why? Because God doesn't change. And as we we will see in a few minutes, it is not just Israel that is God's flock. So when people around you fail you, and they will, or when you feel lost, and you will, 
God has already declared that he wants to be your true shepherd. He wants to be personally involved in guiding you and in providing you with what you truly need. Can you hear that voice calling you? And he promised Israel that he would send a rescuer, a shepherd, a king in the line of David, and that he would make a new covenant of peace. So fast forward 500 years or so from Ezekiel's time to Jesus sitting in the temple having this conversation. Just what is Jesus doing? What is he saying? Who is he saying he is? So we're going to look again at John 10, verse 11. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Wait, what? I am the good shepherd. In other words, I am Yahweh, the God of Israel. Those words alone were punishable by death, considered blasphemy, yet here he is proclaiming this openly in the middle of the temple. The place where God's presence is supposed to dwell. Little do these people realize that God's presence is now in the temple, sitting amongst them. Jews understood there is only one God in Israel, prayed every day, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Remember the commandments, have no other gods before me. Yet here is Jesus declaring that he is the good shepherd. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. A hired hand will run when he sees a wolf coming. He will abandon the sheep because they don't belong to him. The hired hand runs away because he's working only for the money and doesn't really care about the sheep. Here again, Jesus is following Ezekiel 34. He's chastising the leaders of Israel, and the Pharisees that are close by are meant to hear this. We also need to hear what he has to say here. Not because we are necessarily Pharisees, but because we are all shepherds, and we are all sheep, depending on the context of our life, or the period of our life, or different circles we move in. When you are in the context of shepherding a flock, whoever that may be, remember the heart of the good shepherd. In 1 Peter, it sounds like perhaps Peter is recalling this very conversation in the temple that Jesus is having. 1 Peter 5, 2-4 He's writing a letter and he says, as a fellow elder, I appeal to you. Care for the flock that God has entrusted to you. Watch over it willingly, not grudgingly. Not for what you will get out of it, but because you are eager to serve God. Don't lord it over the people assigned to your care, but lead them by your own good example. And when the great shepherd appears, you will receive a crown of never-ending glory and honor. Good advice from Peter for when you and I are in a place of being a shepherd. How about when we are in the context of being one of the flock? Again, we can have comfort in knowing the great shepherd. He cannot fail us. 
He has our best interest at heart. He has laid down his life for us. We need to listen to his voice. Let's continue with verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep and they know me just as my father knows me and I know the father. So I sacrifice my life for the sheep. You know, in just four verses, Jesus has repeated two things. So these are the things he wants you to pay attention to. He has stated twice that he is the good shepherd. Effectively, he's saying, yeah, that's what I said. I am God. The other thing that he has stated twice is that the good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. The people listening would have been like, yeah, okay, Jesus, we get it that the great shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep, so you're really nice and we'll put our needs ahead of, you will put our, you will put our needs ahead of yours. There, that's how it's supposed to go. Yet in hindsight, we look on this passage and we see Jesus prophesying his death and resurrection. He's laying the foundation for understanding just what his death means as a sacrifice for our sins. No hired hand could provide this kind of sacrifice. Jesus wants his listeners to hear who he really is and to remember it when the time comes when he dies. This rescue wasn't going to go down like they expected it to. But that's because there was and is more at stake than just Israel. Let's continue at verse 16. Jesus says, I have other sheep too that are not in this sheepfold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Did you know that Jesus is talking about us here? You and me. Remember, Jesus was Jewish, and the humanness of Jesus is a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of King David, part of God's people, Israel. And that is the flock he's speaking to as the good shepherd in this context, the descendants of those whom God spoke to through David and Ezekiel. But God wanted the whole world to know about his rescue plan. And here Jesus is referring to those outside of the ethnic and cultural circle of Israel. All those who would respond to his voice, his call to salvation through Jesus Christ. We are those other sheep being called by the voice of the good shepherd so we can be of one flock. In the coming months, when Jesus would pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, hours before his death, he prayed for you and me. Did you know that? John 17, 20. This is in the middle of a larger prayer. But here he says, I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. He goes on to pray that he wants us to be with him where he is so we can all see the glory that God gave him 
because God loved him even before the beginning of the world. Jesus prayed that for you and me hours before his sacrifice. Did you know that you were prayed for by God himself? By the creator of the universe? By your creator, the good shepherd? Back to the conversation at the temple. Jesus continues in verse 17. The Father loves me because I sacrificed my life so I may take it back again. No one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily. Take a moment to appreciate the boldness of this statement. Jesus is sitting in the temple declaring that he is God himself, something that is punishable by death when spoken by any other human, and then saying, you can't kill me unless I want you to kill me. And keep in mind, there have already been several attempts on his life, so it would seem he speaks the truth. The word voluntary is also very important to keep in mind here. I think many skeptics try to emphasize the cruelness of God, not only in the Old Testament, but here with God killing his son. However, Jesus is making a very clear statement here. Prior to his death, not after, that he does not seek a death wish or suicide by other people, nor is he being made to do this. He has authority over all aspects of his sacrifice to come. He says he sacrifices his life voluntarily. And he goes on to say this, for I have the authority to lay it down when I want to and also to take it up again, for this is what my father commanded. His father commanded that he have authority over his own life. In the NIV, it reads more fluidly here. It reads like this, I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. So why, you might ask, is he voluntarily sacrificing his life in the first place? What is, why does he have to do that? Because he wants us to be his people, his flock, the sheep of his pasture, because he loves us. We are a flock that is separated from him because of our brokenness and sin. It was his sacrifice that paid the price of our sin. And now if we follow his voice, the separation between God and each of us can be ended and we can join that flock. This sacrifice provides peace between God and man. It's the new covenant of peace that God was talking about. Now, speaking of his life, he said he had authority to take it up again. What do you think the Jews thought of that statement? Right here, we have Jesus claiming that he is going to die and come back to life. He prophesies his own death and resurrection. And we can see this fairly effortlessly as we read through 
But we have 2020 hindsight. We know the end of the story. But put yourselves again in the shoes of the people that are sitting around Jesus at, this, at the time of this conversation and put your mindset before the resurrection. I think this statement about taking his life back probably went completely unnoticed at the time. You know when your kids say something, or no, when you're talking to your kids who don't have the same vocabulary as you, and you say something to them, and they, get, they hear a word that they don't know, but they apply a word they do know to it that's simpler, and they completely miss the meaning. They heard you, but they don't understand what you're saying. I think that might be a little bit of what's going on here. Did you know that prior to Jesus' resurrection, there was zero concept of a bodily resurrection? A whole and immortal human being? The Jews believed in the resurrection. Everyone comes back from the dead way, way, way in the future at the end of days when God judges everybody. He'll raise everybody from the dead. They believed in that. But for a person to come back from the dead, to be resurrected Jesus style, was a non-starter. Certainly not for the expected Messiah. Yes, people in Jesus' ministry were raised from the dead. He, you remember Lazarus and you remember the centurion servant, but they died again. There were claims in Rome of people rising from the dead, but when they talked about that, they were talking about spirits coming back from the dead. They believed in Hades, and, but they also believed that the body was bad. Physical things were less than, and the spiritual things were to be attained to, and so somebody saw an emperor rising and smoke rising. It's all ghosty. Not a body, an immortal body, that would be... For Romans, that would be disgusting, or it wouldn't even be thought of. Anyway, for Jesus to say that he had the authority to take his life up again, to raise himself back to his perfect physical and now immortal body, yeah, they had no idea. When the resurrection did happen, I can imagine this. I imagine they said, hey, remember that time when Jesus was in the temple and he said that thing we didn't get about taking his life back? He just did that thing. I bet that happened a lot after the resurrection, as people recalled what Jesus had taught them, and as the Holy Spirit moved. And the point is, is that it did happen after the resurrection. The point is that that happened. Jesus said it would happen, and it happened. So Jesus in the temple, having this discussion about being the good shepherd, in a matter of sentences, he's just dropped a verbal bomb. He has claimed to be Yahweh, God of the Old Testament. He has said that he is the promised rescuer, the Messiah, the anointed one that the Jews were waiting for, not just of them, but of everybody else. And he said that he has the authority to sacrifice his life when he wants to and the authority to take it back up again. I'm betting that the people who were there probably only heard or stopped listening after he said, I am God. I am the good shepherd. 
At that point, everybody started talking. This guy's crazy. No, he's not. Yes, he is. Look at verse 19. When he said these things, the people were again divided in their opinions about him. Some said, he's demon-possessed and out of his mind. Why listen to a man like that? Others said, this doesn't sound like a demon-possessed man. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And so we come full circle back to the blind man who was healed. All the locals knew him. He was the proof that Jesus wasn't crazy, a blower of hot air. I mean, words are easy to say, right? But actually healing with spit and mud a grown man who had been born blind? That's walking the talk. Jesus didn't just confront the people in the temple with his identity. What he says here, it confronts each and every one of us. I mean, when you hear someone who has a psychotic issue saying that they are Jesus and laughing maniacally, you're pretty aware that they are crazy. You don't believe them. And many people brushed aside Jesus' comments that day as if he was that crazy person. Others said, wait a minute, he healed that guy that we know personally, and he isn't raving mad. Which side are you on? Who do you agree with? You've heard Jesus' claims over the last 30 minutes or so. They're bold claims. And you really only have two choices. You either believe what he said about himself, or you don't. You can't really have it in the middle. Jesus isn't just a nice teacher who had a huge influence on society. This guy claimed to be God. He was either lying or he wasn't. If he wasn't lying, then his words have huge implications for us. What do you mean, huge implications? I mean that if he is God like he said he is, then he's the creator of the universe. Ultimately of you and I. He was sitting in the temple talking about gathering us into his flock. And later he prayed for us, right before he died, that we would believe in him and as a result one day be with him. Then in a short while after that prayer, he followed through. He took his life back again. He rose from the dead. It means that his voice is the voice. He is God. You need to know it above all others. There are a lot of voices out there competing for our attention. I have other sheep too. They are not in this sheepfold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. Are you one of them? Did Jesus speak of you while he sat in the temple? Do you know the voice of your shepherd? I leave you with that question today. Worship team, would you come and lead us in our final song?